Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer, the host of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai, where we're going to talk about the Japanese concept of Ikigai or living a life of purpose. Here you're going to hear inspirational stories from all different types of people who are finding their own life of purpose. You're going to hear about how they found their Ikigai and what they do every day to live an integrated life. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Good morning, good afternoon, good afternoon, evening. I don't even know what time of day it is because I'm talking with the time off author, Max Frenzel, and he's made me think about time in a strange way. But welcome to the Ikigai with Jen Fishinkai podcast, YouTube channel, and uh, general chat time that we're going to have today. And I'm so excited to have Max here because I remember I first met him in a real face-to-face event. <laughs> Do you remember? Those days, yes. Yes. That was wonderful. Yeah. It must have been November 2019. That sounds about right. At the British Chamber of Commerce, British Business Awards event. And we were on a table at the at the back near the bar. Catherine O'Connell was there. Rob Williams was there. Yes. I'm trying to remember who else. And this is when I think you were just, you were already working on uh, Time Off. Exactly. It was sort of like, well, we thought it was the final stages, but then our editor realized actually we had 10% of the book done so far. But uh, I guess that's a separate discussion. (laughs) Right. Well, that's another reason that we're here today is because I was talking to my editor, who's also was recommended by you and was your editor, the wonderful Anne Maynard. And uh, we were talking about this concept, which we'll get to in a moment, about room in your mind from Ikigai 9. We were like, Max Max is the ideal guy. But not all of you have had the pleasure of having a lovely dinner with Max. So let me spend a moment reading his bio and telling you about him. You can also read all of this in the show notes as well. But he is the co-author of the international bestseller, Time Off. Here it is, a practical guide. You can see it over his shoulder as well. Good, good. To a practical guide to building your rest ethic and finding success without the stress. And his ideas have been featured in Fast Company, Financial Times, Thrive Global, Entrepreneur Magazine, and many other publications where you can find brilliant thought leaders. This is not written in his uh, his bio, my, my edition. But, you know, he's also got PhD quantum information theory from Imperial College London and uh, also when was at Todai as a postdoctoral research fellow. Yes. He's no slouch. He's got some some brains up here as well and he's been involved in some uh, tech startups looking at AI research and product design. And when I met you, Max, I remember that you were talking a lot about AI deep learning and how that came into creativity, design and music. So I think that is something which you are working on with AI art right now. He also likes a lot of good coffee and (laughs) bread baking skills which I think many people took up in the pandemic. So perhaps you can uh, share. So much so that the flour was sold out everywhere. It was actually quite tricky getting flour. <laughs> and I heard there was like a yeast, a yeast lack. That's possible. I make my own sourdough. So I have a starter living in my fridge. So I'm not influenced by that. <laughs> All right. So you were, you were not <laughs> impacted by that. But yes, here he is in Tokyo. All of his information is down below in the show notes. I'm Pointing down below because I'm such a wannabe YouTuber. Uh, for those of you listening on the podcast, no, no impact there at all. But this idea of uh, so welcome, Max. Thanks for having me. This idea of time off. 
And this idea of having room in your mind. So room in your mind is one of the Ikigai nine sort of check-in points from some researchers, originally started by researchers in Japan, and then it's recently been validated in English. And it has nine different areas that you can look at to check in on your Ikigai. And the one which every time I do a corporate workshop gets the lowest number, the lowest score of, uh, you know, on the scale every single time, like I'm excited about the, uh, about my life. I feel that people rely on me. I make a difference to someone. All of these ones, very good scores. Usually I have room in my mind is always very low every single time. And it doesn't matter whether that workshop is with clients in Japan, in Europe, in India, every single group I've done it with has been so low. So I feel like this idea of uh, room in my mind, because people also don't understand what it means, very much ties in with your book about the theme of time off. And so what I'd like to explore in this conversation today with you is, yeah, what does it mean to have room in your mind from, from all of your research on this? So maybe we'll dive in there. Absolutely. Before we go there, I'd actually like to ask you a question. I'm very curious, over the last year or so, when you did these workshops with clients, have you seen an increase in that? Did the room in people's mind decrease during the pandemic? I'd be really curious to hear about that. Oh, I'd have to go and have a look into Mentimeter and see what the data is. I feel anecdotally mm. that there is less room in mind. I think there was a period at the beginning of the pandemic when everything paused, that people felt like, oh, now I have time to think about like, what is my ikigai or why am I here? What am I doing with my life? And then Teams and Zoom and back-to-back -back meetings, working from home with no space, being on 24-7. I think you'll talk about the cult of busyness a little bit as well today. Yeah, that started to overtake. Mm. So yeah, I think there was a brief period anecdotally, but not data-driven, I'm afraid. Because mm. that's also something we've seen quite a lot with people we talk to and maybe just take a step back. So we wrote a book called Time Off. And when a lot of people hear Time Off, they think about, I don't know, beach vacation or watching Netflix. There's nothing wrong with these things. They're great rest, they're great relaxation. But what we mean with time off is much, much broader than this. And I think this will also tie into the idea of uh, room in your mind. So time off, we break it down into many different areas. So it can be like pure rest. That's definitely one component. Sleep is a huge one. Exercise is a big one for many people. Play, solitude, all these various different aspects. And we talk about this concept of a rest ethic. So everyone's heard of a work ethic and everyone knows what a work ethic is. And a lot of people pride themselves in their work ethic. And that's great. A good work ethic helps you execute and get stuff done. But very, very few people consider their rest ethic. But we believe that it's just as important as the work ethic. And we like to think of work ethic and rest ethic uh, kind of by breathing analogy. So the work ethic is your inhale and the rest ethic is your exhale. The problem is so many people walk around their lives trying to inhale, hold a bit, inhale a bit more until 
we suffer from burnout and all these other things. So people need to relearn to exhale. They need to relearn this rest ethic idea. And it is something that needs to be very conscious. A lot of people think that time off just happens in the white spaces in your calendar. What white space? <laughs> exactly. That's another <laughs> issue. But even if you make the white spaces, there's very different types of rest. There's different qualities of rest. And even if you have a white space in your calendar, it doesn't mean that you have a well, white space, that you have room in your mind as well. So we really encourage people to think about this rest ethic and really think of work ethic and rest ethic as two sides of the same coin. They both kind of enhance each other, just like an inhale or an exhale prepares you for the next inhale. So your rest ethic prepares you to have a good work ethic and vice versa. And I mean, we'll probably get deeper into this uh, at some point later. But one of the core ideas of the book is also around creativity or just the future of work and the future of knowledge workers. Not many people right now, unfortunately, consider themselves artists. But I and my co-author, we strongly believe that every knowledge worker, to some extent, is an artist, is a creative. And that's going to become more and more important in the future. And creativity there is a very broad term. So we also include empathy in that, this human to human connection. And these creative aspects and empathetic aspects, those are the things that you can't easily automate by a machine. So I spent my career working in AI. My co-author spent a lot of his time in automation technologies. We're building the future of automation. A lot of people are worried that these things are going to take over our jobs. We believe they're just going to shift the landscape. There will be disruption, but those people who thrive in the future are the ones who focus on creativity, on empathy, and on those uniquely human skills. And they need a very solid rest ethic, and they need room in their mind. Think about business leaders or managers who don't have room in their mind. They're very reactive, easy to anger, not very empathetic. So I think leaders should really take a note of that as well, the way they treat their teams and the way they lead their companies and also innovation in general. It's so important to have room in your mind, to have a rest ethic. Uh, Natalie Nixon, another great author, she wrote a book called The Creativity Leap or The Creative Leap. She likes to talk about creativity as happening at the intersection of wonder and rigor. You need both the wonder, the awe, as well as then the rigor, the kind of actually sitting down and doing the hard work. So it's almost like work ethic and rest ethic. It's kind of another analogy, maybe. Alison Gopnik is someone we talk about in the book. She's a, a child psychologist. She studies how children learn. She says children have this kind of lantern mindset. They illuminate everything around them by this very diffuse light. Whereas adults have much more of a spotlight consciousness. It very narrows down on the task. Both are very good at particular things, and you need both to really make creative breakthroughs. Children are incredibly creative. They just lack the rigor component of actually sitting down and analyzing, hey, does this actually really make sense? Is this implementable? And how do we take it to the next step? Adults, on the other hand, often lack the initial stage of the creativity, the awe, the wonder. So if we can combine these, and again, it requires space in your mind, then we can become creative and then we can become innovative and also solve the big problems that we're facing, but also much more mundane, just be happy and find meaning and purpose in our lives. Just be happy. Oh my goodness, Max. So much, so much juice. Sorry, wonderful. I went no, too far maybe. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I was like, 
do I do I want to interrupt and go back? No, just let him let him go because there's so many things I want to pick up. So first of all, like the inhale and the exhale. I seem to remember in yoga being told that the exhale was more important than the inhale. Uh. So when you apply that to the idea of the rest ethic, as you talk about it in the book, is my yoga teacher right? Well, physiologically speaking, definitely. <laughs> For yoga, definitely. For the work ethic, rest ethic analogy, it's hard to say. I think what's really important is being aware of your cycles and really realizing that there's seasonality, that becoming aware of these cycles. And then at some points, you want to lean heavier into the work ethic side. You want to lean heavier into the inhale side. At other times, you definitely want to prioritize the exhale. You want to prioritize the rest ethic. I think overall, to find a happy life, I probably agree. The exhale, you need to nail that down first before you can focus on the inhale. Having a solid rest ethic is probably more important for happiness, well-being than having the work ethic. I mean, ignoring the fact that you have to support yourself somehow. So you can't completely ignore the work ethic, unfortunately. But I think the real key is the balance and also being aware of the cycles that you have. That's wonderful. And I'm just remembering something in, in the book, and I haven't read it all because I have a very <laughs> poor rest ethic at the moment. I'm heavy into Netflix resting right now. You're not the only one. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure of that. Uh, I've watched some great stuff, but I'll talk about that another time. You talk about the work ethic from uh, obviously having quite deeply religious, like the Protestant work ethic piece. And I'm interested from your time in Japan, and as this is a show about Ikigai, uh, as a Japanese concept, thinking about, you know, how, how did the work ethic of Japan come about? Does anything of that come up in your research at all? I've had this question recently as well. And unfortunately, we've not gone too deep into it. It could almost be a follow-on book. Um, I had someone point out, and very rightly so, that our book has quite a Western, kind of, at least historically speaking, like we start the book with a history section of like rest used to be something very noble I and mean, it used to be the highest ideal to aspire to. And then only in quite recent times, like the last two, three hundred years, we forgot about the value of rest and kind of started celebrating busyness. But we look at all of this through quite a Western perspective. And there's probably a good reason because in the business world, the Western culture is probably in a way more influential. But it would be very, very interesting to look at that through an Asian perspective as well, kind of Buddhist perspective. Actually, a friend of mine, he's currently writing a book looking through work and the history of work uh, at, at those through the lens of Buddhism, actually. So that's quite exciting. But just about Japan. So a few interesting facts, maybe. I don't know how this was estimated, but there are statistics that suggest that Japan is losing 3% of its GDP. That's roughly the same budget that Japan has for education, just due to lack of sleep. So people here, as you know, are definitely not sleeping enough. If you've ever been on a train, you see <laughs> that they're catching up sleep anywhere they can. And it's estimated that the Japanese economy is losing 3% of its GDP as a direct result of that. Also, Japan for manufacturing has one of the highest productivities in the world. If you look, on the other hand, at knowledge work, out of all developed countries, Japan has by far the lowest productivity in terms of knowledge work. And it's kind of a vicious cycle because people try to make it up with longer and longer hours. 
then kind of getting more and more burned out. And it's just a cycle of busyness feeds into more busyness and creativity drops rapidly and actual output drops rapidly. A lot of people are confusing busyness with productivity, but putting time in does not mean you're actually getting quality results out. I think that's really, if I need to sum up the book in kind of one sentence, that's really it. Busyness is not the same as productivity. If you work two hours at 50% of your mental capacity, that's not at all the same as working one hour at 100% of your capacity. This kind of productivity in the creative sense, and that's going to be the only sense that's going to be valuable in the future, it's not additive in any way. So rather focusing rather than focusing on kind of the busyness and just putting more time and throwing more time at the problem, try and focus on the quality of your work. And Japan is very, very bad at that. In one of my previous jobs, uh, actually, at the time we, were, we first met, I was sharing an office with a team from Dentsu, big Japanese uh, company, very well known. Famous for their great, their great working uh, ethic. Exactly, exactly. And I was internally giving a talk about these ideas of time off and people were shocked. They were like, what, people can work that way? Like I was giving examples, like some of the profiles I mentioned in the book and people were shocked that like, this is a way that like, there's different ways of working than just working from, I don't know, 7 a.m. till 11 p.m. every single day. And they were really excited about all these ideas, but they said it could never work in Japan. There's just no way it can work. But I think there are younger, kind of smaller teams that are now really embracing that. And I know you've been working with quite a few clients here in Japan as well. So I'd actually be really curious to hear if you've seen a shift in the thinking around these ideas as well here. I definitely think that there's more, more openness to it. And one of the things which I try to challenge people on is... What are you, because when, when it's like, why would it not work in Japan? It's like, because of customers. So uh, my challenge is always, what are you like as a customer? No. So if you can adjust your norms as a customer, like what you expect in terms of time, what does timely feedback mean? If you send an email at 10 o'clock because it's convenient for you, are you expecting a response? And I feel like, you know, Dentsu is a huge advertising agency where, you know, their clients are investing, you know, millions of yen in, in any campaign. There is that expectation that you are on call 24 seven. And it, it's that, that client, that customer relationship with the customer as God Teksama or Kamisama in Japan is, I think, one of the biggest challenges. So I, I always say to people, well, let's look at who you are as a customer or how you manage internal expectations around time off and uh, response rates. That's such a great point. One of the profiles we have in the book, I don't know if you've seen it yet, it's of two Japanese work-life balance consultants. So it's actually the very final profile in the book so you might not have gotten there but they said what they're doing especially for the bigger companies it's tiny tiny changes but they have such a big impact just because there's so much low-hanging fruit here for example having an auto reply after 11 p.m saying oh sorry i'm not going to reply to your email until the next morning that seems so crazy to a lot of Japanese people, but it's really just giving these little breathing space and kind of implementing these little micro steps. And it also start with small teams within the company. And they then watch the snowball grow outwards and slowly, slowly. But it's really tiny changes that here can have such a big impact. So 
I think while Japan is not at a great stage at the moment, just because there's so much low-hanging fruit, there's a lot that can be done if people are just willing to make these tiny changes. Well, we'll get into some of those tiny changes, but I think it's it's really interesting and I appreciate you bringing this Japan perspective because one of the motivators for me to to work on you know this podcast and and my book about ikigai was i was looking at the examples which are commonly shared in the west around ikigai and life in japan i was like well these wonderful centenarians in in okinawa don't really have much to do with you know karo suzuki who's yeah working at a large advertising agency or even in his his family run business you know or yeah, people in the metropolis are having a very different lifestyle, I think, than those uh, aged people in Okinawa. So I wanted to do a little bit of thinking about what does what does ikigai mean if you're not in that type of environment and how can you start to create it? And uh, before we uh, started recording today, I said, well, Max, I got to tell you, the biggest problem I have with your book <laughs> is that the the idea of noble leisure and many of the people where I'm at so far in the book. So I will say I haven't read it yet. I read it all yet. But uh, it doesn't sort of take into account the idea of caregiving or, you know, <laughs> there's, uh, the, the fact that Aristotle had like a load of slaves. <laughs> many of the people, <laughs> these great minds, these wonderful dead white men all had servants and, and people kind of taking care of their daily needs. But that aside, if we think about how even with, even with these realities of maybe you, you are taking care of elderly parents or children or, you know, you anything which is just kind of coming up, you know, the dry cleaning or taking out the bins, there is an opportunity for each of us to create. So first of all, maybe we need to talk a little bit more about noble leisure it's kind of we've used this phrase, but we haven't explained it. And then I'd love to hear some of your low-hanging fruit ideas because I feel noble leisure can become part of somebody's ikigai. There's about 15 questions there, but first of all, let's go with what is noble leisure? Let's start there. And I have to apologize. I do pronounce it noble leisure. I guess that's the American way of saying it. Leisure. <laughs> do you say niche or niche? That's a good question. I think niche I usually say. <laughs> is that American as well? I, I, I think so. But that's okay. We're, we're very inclusive on Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai. I think like I got so influenced by my co-author, John, and he had to, or well, rather our editor had to fix a lot of British spelling in the book. So anyway, noble leisure. It's a concept that goes all the way back to Aristotle. And a lot of people think leisure is the same as rest. And I touched a little bit on that earlier that, yes, rest is maybe one part of that, but there's more to it. But actually to Aristotle, leisure and rest were not at all the same. So he had this hierarchy where rest, in the way he defined it, set at the bottom of the hierarchy. It's just something that always asks the question, rest for what? And usually the answer to that is, well, rest to do more work. Then work sort of sits in the middle of his hierarchy. It's just a necessary thing we need to do. But what it really allows us then to do, or in his case, if his slaves are working, um, it allows him to do that, but <laughs> side point. But work really prepares us for this highest things human can aspire to, which is noble leisure. And in a way, it's everything that gives you meaning in your life. So I think noble leisure in this way is very similar to Ikigai. It's all these pursuits that fill you with deep meaning. And what noble leisure looks to me is probably very different than what it is to you. And I think everyone has to find that for themselves, what it means to them. To Aristotle, his work of philosophizing, it was work to him. 
but it was also noble leisure at the same time. We often give the example, a lot of people find their noble leisure in cooking. That's the thing that very often comes up, especially cooking for other people. There's this kind of giving component in there as well. But some people hate cooking. To them, it's terrible work. Gardening is another great example. And also those big projects, and we might again get into that more later, but for me, writing the book was a lot of really hard work and hundreds and hundreds of hours. But it was also probably the greatest noble leisure I ever experienced. The more energy I put into it, the more energy I got back from it. So I think that's a really important thing. And people should sort of like think in their lives, what are these activities that energize them? The more energy they put into it. And conversely, I think what a lot of us have been experiencing recently, it's just things that drain us in terms of energy, uh, kind of, again, becoming aware of these, finding the right cycles there. And as I said, noble leisure looks very different for different people. And it also, I think, changes with our seasons in life. So what my noble leisure looks like right now is very different from what it looked like a year, five years ago. There's very big events like having children, which completely change what noble leisure means to you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's actually one of the things we often get asked, like, how do parents apply this? And I mean, we both don't have kids, me and my co-author, so it's always a bit challenging. He's got puppies now, so it's getting there, but it's still a big, <laughs> big jump. But this, is, this is book two, I think, or book three. There could be quite a few of those, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there are these really kind of high sort of idealistic ways of no leisure. Another more rich white guy, Bertrand Russell, said at the beginning of the 20th century that it was the leisure class that built civilization. And there is truth to that. I mean, if you think about the sciences, literature, culture, all of these things historically were driven by people who had time. And Russell admitted that completely. It was because there was a vast majority of people, the working class, who were slaving away supporting those few rich people and enabling them to make these big breakthrough contributions. And he was very optimistic in 1920 in a great essay called In Praise of Idleness. I really recommend everyone checking that out. Uh, we quite a lot uh, cited from that in the book as well. But he said more and more, especially with modern technology and sort of AI and automation now in the 21st century, more and more people can join that leisure class and more and more people can make these big contributions, these big breakthroughs. So there are these really big, high idealistic things like contributing to science, philosophy, whatever. That's definitely one aspect of noble leisure. And that's kind of the shining beacon we all maybe aspire to. But there's also much more mundane things. Like I was saying, cooking for friends, cooking for family can fill you with a deep sense of meaning and purpose. Also, I'm sure caring for your children, I hope that that also still fills you with a deep sense of purpose. Some days more than others. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> One of my favorite profiles that we have in the book, I think, is about Hermann Hesse. He was a German poet and novelist. He talked a lot about the value of solitude as well. But one quote in particular, I really like, and it's, I think, something along the lines of the person who picks up a, a small flower on the way to work has made a small step towards joy and happiness. So he says, yes, those great things like the fancy beach vacation or adventure or whatever it is you really aspire to, they're wonderful, mm. but you first have to actually learn to appreciate those small joys in life. Looking out the window, seeing something that makes you smile. 
those small little pockets. And also right now in the pandemic, those small little pockets of just normal life in a way, and those can bring you joy. Noticing those is really the first step. Because if you can't do that, you're not going to get all out of like those bigger things. I think a lot of people realize they go on these crazy vacations and then afterwards they find themselves even more exhausted and even more <laughs> or with even less space in their mind than they had before. So starting at the little ones, and we call it, we kind of rephrase his uh, practice as time off microdosing. Starting with that will then enable you to also appreciate and really make the most of those bigger things. So I think everyone can inject them into their life and they don't have to be someone supported by, I don't know, 50 slaves or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It's not not the direction that we want sort of humanity to, to go for. At least I don't right now. Well, we have the technological slaves. So in a way, yes, exactly. Yes, all for them. <laughs> all for them. I think that that idea of like to be here now is very important in Ikigai. You know, like what is your reason to live, the Ikigai? Is, is often mentioned by many of the researchers into it, you know, people talking about those external things of, of hobbies, of grandchildren, of small moments in the day, uh, yeah, where you can pick up a flower on the way to work. So I think there's many points where they, they come across. Dr. Akihiro Hasegawa, who is my favorite, favorite Ikigai researcher, you know, he talks about Ikigai has kind of two definitions for him. And so one of them is an individual's consciousness as a motivation to live. Mm. And then the second is the state of being here now. I may not have quite translated that correctly. Something something along those step, those lines. And so I think that's really important. I also want to do a shout out to two other important points that I think you mentioned, which have come up in many other podcasts and uh, in the work that I'm writing right now. One is that you have to find out what it means to you. And there isn't uh, one certain thing. And it may look very different as how it's, uh, it shows up in the world. And it may change. Yeah, it may change like the seasonality. And I, I ran an Ikigai workshop last week. And when I shared this point, uh, the participants just felt like this, just lightening this mm. sense of ease that they had room in their mind to, to play with, you know, it doesn't have to be one thing. No. You know, the, the Venn diagram that many people know about Ikigai seems to show that there is this one central point where everything comes together and this will be it. But it's actually uh, much more expansive. Mm. I think you, you've hit on that idea. And I also really love what you said, the more energy I put in, the more energy I get out. I think that's absolutely magical. And I was a uh, goosebumps then and I'm, I'm goosebumps now. Yeah, I've actually been thinking about that quite a lot recently, also because of my own circumstances. But I just started writing an article. It's not ready yet or out anywhere. But I was thinking for a very long time, people, when they assessed a job, just in terms of metrics, what they cared about was the absolute salary. I think very recently, we've seen a shift of a lot of people trying to get away from this to thinking more about like how much do they make per hour and then reducing the hours to still support them. So trying to maximize the amount you get paid per hour. But I think we should go one step further because not every hour of work is created equal in that sense, right? Mm. I think if I was just say the standard eight hour day and I've had different jobs where I was technically working eight hour days, 
the energy I had left over in the remaining 16 hours varied dramatically from those. And I think taking that into account, if something energizes me more, then those eight hours of work are almost just like two or three or four hours because the hours outside of work are so much more valuable than some other jobs. You work eight hours and it's so emotionally draining that the mm. rest of the day is completely destroyed almost by them. You can just basically just sit in front of Netflix and just kind of waste <laughs> away your time. Not that it's completely wasting time, but you see what I mean, right? Yeah. So I think thinking about this quality of the hours again is really important. And it all comes back to how much energy does it take from you or does it give you back? Mm, I really like that as a way to to think about the the objects of Ikigai and how, mm. how we're spending our time on this earth. And this interesting uh, research by, you should look at uh, Marcus Buckingham. He was in the Gallup and he talks about strengths, uh, things which make you feel strong. Mm. So check out, he has a, a lot of, a lot of information around that and talking about, you know, you look forward to doing it. And uh, when you're doing it, it's kind of flow state as well. You know, you feel your neurons are all firing and you're tired, but you're not exhausted. Totally. So these, these different things, I think this is a good, a good hint for people to, to think about looking for those noble leisure uh, (laughs) moments. Tried really hard. I'm sorry. Uh, Moments of, uh, moments of ikigai as well. No, I think you just mentioned flow and that's such a great concept as well. And I, I know it's very closely related to noble leisure and I'm sure it's quite closely related to ikigai and what you're looking at as well. I think probably noble leisure and having your ikigai and knowing what that is enables you to much more easily get into flow stage, right? Mm. And again, talking about room in your mind, flow is probably one of the best things to create room in your mind. Like it's all about detaching I think a lot of us struggle, especially right now with boundaries completely disappearing and a lot of us working and living in the same place. The boundaries have completely gone. If you can add detachment from your work or from whatever you're struggling with or whatever is taking most of your attention, getting those hard boundaries there, getting the detachment, that's so critical for good, deep rest. And flow is one of the best things for that because you're so focused on whatever you're doing. It's this kind of, it's something that's difficult enough to challenge you and really drag you in, but at the same time, not too difficult so that it feels strenuous. It's kind of this ease and focus, but also you feel challenged and you feel like you accomplished something. A lot of people, I think, get it from like playing a musical instrument, for example, or painting. I know you're quite into arts and drawing and painting. So I'm sure you get into flow states through that as well. And it's just one of the greatest tools for achieving this detachment, even if it's just for an hour or two. And I like this idea as well of being detached, because one of the other things I've been thinking about a lot is like the dark side of Ikigai and maybe the the dark side of perhaps being too attached Mm. to certain labels or projects. And you mentioned seasonality. And uh, in our pre-show mails, uh, you also shared that there was this moment when, of course, your book launched. So could you tell a little bit about that (laughs) 
detachment phase and, and how you work through that, because I think many listeners will have uh, they, they people come to the topic of Ikigai usually when they feel Ikigai Ganai, like I don't have it. Something is amiss here. Yeah. And I think it's a known phenomenon. And I'd love to yeah hear about your experience with this mm. shift. Yeah. I mean, maybe my experience was a bit different than what most people their experience or going through because, well, as I said earlier, working on the book, it was the most noble leisure, most ikigai project I've ever worked on. It gave me such a deep sense of meaning and purpose and energy. I love, I love your smile. I just want to like <laughs> acknowledge how your energy and face shifted. Exactly. It just tells you how meaningful that was to me and how much I enjoyed it, even though it was hard work. And then suddenly it was done. We launched a book. I mean, there was the writing, then there was the editing, then was the public was self-published. So there was a lot of work around that as well. But we launched a book in May last year, so pretty much a year ago. And then there was the buzz of the launch, which was also great and a lot of media attention, all of that, and a lot of interviews. But that then at some point kind of fizzled out. Sort of mid-July, I was asking myself, now what? Like what's next? And that was actually quite difficult for me. And I think I made a bit too many choice uh, changes at the same mm. time. I launched a book on May 25th. On June 1st, I started a new job, which in retrospect, uh, and I'm actually just transitioning out of that again, I realized I have only good things to say about the company, about my team. And I'd even say objectively, for the vast majority of people, it's probably the best job I ever had. <laughs> it just absolutely didn't align with me. I realized I'm not a manager. I also realized I was not particularly passionate about the product. And for me, managing people around something I don't deeply care about, it's so emotionally draining. Mm. There's other people who love that, who just enjoy managing by itself, but I'm too much of a creator. I'm too much of an entrepreneur. I need to care about what I'm building. I think I'm a good leader, but I'm not a good manager. I can only do the leadership if I really care about that thing. And I think that combination of having this big project suddenly finish and then me transitioning into that other role, which was, as I realized later, really emotionally training, it just sent me into this kind of deep valley. And I thought I had anxiety. I thought I had depression. Uh, recently... Adam Grant, I don't know if you saw his New York Times article he published, he basically popularized, popularized this word of languishing. And I was so, oh my God, this is perfect. This is exactly what I'm feeling. It resonated with so many people. I had that shared to me so many times. Finally, we all have a word to describe what we're going through, right? And he makes such a great point. Mm. Not being mentally ill does not mean you're mentally healthy either, right? There's so much in between. Mm. And right now, so many of us are just somewhere in the middle or somewhere to the kind of mental illness side of the spectrum. Mm. But it's not bad enough that we actually really seek help or actively do something about it. And he actually said that flow is the best antidote to languishing. And I just published an article saying, yes, I agree, but I actually think noble leisure, or yes. I guess ikigai, goes even <laughs> one step further because it encompasses flow, but it also mm. is so much more. Like flow, it's in the moment, whereas the sense of meaning that you get from ikigai, from noble leisure, kind of permeates your entire life. So... I'm now in the process of just realigning myself with what I deeply care about. And it was a difficult year in a way. I mean, 
I'm very privileged to say it was a difficult year. I know a lot of people suffered way, way more. And it was overall a pretty damn good year for me. We can hold that. <laughs> we can hold both. But it was more difficult for other people. And exactly. Also difficult for you. This is what my amazing coach, Sarah Fidia, always talks about, you know. Yeah. We, we can hold the paradox. Totally. It's okay. Totally. No, and I'm happy that I experienced that because it taught me so much about what I want. Mm-hmm. I like when I thought about what's my ikigai, I actually struggled finding an answer to that because I realized it changes every two, three years or so. But then I thought like one step further, actually, that's not true. Like deeper down, if I think about it, I've been doing so many ran- seemingly random things, but below all of this is kind of this deep passion about creating things and making things. And mm. just this last year of not making things, but managing other people to make things that I didn't necessarily care about made me just realize I need to create myself. I need to do these things myself. I need to build things. And now I'm realigning my life towards that direction more again. And I hope that I've found my ikigai again and a more well aligning my life with that. Yes. Well, I think I think some of it is that we we actually Ken Moggy describes it that ikigai is not going to come as like a flash of inspiration. There's not going to be a loud fanfare of trumpets or anything like that. It's it's the already held intuitions yeah. are going to come out. And I feel like you're having this realization that I knew this all along. Yeah. And now I can see it. And now I want to actually, I, now I'm going to integrate it mm. and do it. Totally. You know, and and the previous guest, uh, Zane Zabalan, talked about this, you know, walking beans job that he had. And it was like through this experience of this awful job, I realized what, that's what I don't want to do. Mm. And sometimes you kind of have to go through these difficult situations to be able to learn and to know. Yeah. And it's and one of the challenging things about you know ikigai and, and researching around ikigai is that it is a lived experience. It's not an abstract concept. And like you said about the uh, noble leisure activities, <laughs> noble leisure activities. You know, it's, it's going to look noble leisure is going to look different to everyone, and ikigai is going to look and feel different to everyone as well. And being able to hold that diversity of how that lived experience feels is is really important, and to remove sort of the comparison elements. But I wanted to ask you for some low-hanging fruits and I'd love some uh, tips on microdoses, time off microdoses. Do I have it correct? Yes. Yes, time off microdoses that I can use to create some room in my mind, Max. Absolutely. So we have many different ones. And so maybe just talk about the book a little bit. It's, as I said, split into these different chapters about sleep, solitude, uh, play, exercise, all these different things. But within those chapters, we also have profiles of around 50 different people, past as well as present, who found success through time off. And for each of these people, we have like one actionable practice that people can try for themselves. And not everything is going to resonate with everyone. So we really encourage people to try these things for themselves and make them their own and also just like to f- ignore the things that don't work for them. So I can only give a few ideas, but everyone really needs to figure that out for themselves and apply it in their own lives. Good caveats. <laughs> Absolutely. What are your top three that most resonate for you? One thing that everyone should have in their sort of rest ethic arsenal is good sleep. There's just no way around good sleep. And a lot of people are deluding themselves with how little sleep they think they need. But the irony there is like it's well studied. Our metacognition, so understanding our own 
understanding and thinking diminishes very, very rapidly as we sleep less. So it becomes much easier to delude yourself how productive and fit you actually are the less you sleep. So the one most important thing, and if you want to start anywhere, start with good sleep. Actually, medically, anything less than seven hours consistently is considered chronic sleep loss or chronic lack of sleep. And I'm sure so many people listening now will be kind of shocked, actually, and scared. So exactly how much time you need is very personal, but it should not be less than seven hours. There is like 1% of people uh, who can actually handle less than that. But the amount of people who think they can is much higher than 1%. I remember reading in uh, uh, Huffington, Ariana Huffington's book about sleep. Yes. And basically saying it's like you're drunk all the time. Totally. I think what's the number... I think 18 hours of being awake, 18 hours, something surprisingly small is equivalent to being legally drunk in most countries when it comes to driving, which is really scary. And it becomes even more scary if you think what kind of people operate in that way. Doctors work ridiculous shift and they're essentially legally drunk. It's the same effect on their physiology, on their reactions, on their thinking as being drunk. It's really scary. And there needs to be a big shift in that. We're actually currently working with healthcare providers to help them build better rest ethics. I think there's other professions as well, and it has a big impact on everyone, but there's certain ones like doctors where it's particularly scary, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's not that the doctors particularly want to work those long hours, those long shifts. They have been uh, complaining, their unions have been complaining, many, many things going on. And I, I remember reading, though, that yeah, doctors have some of the highest, this was in the UK, like the highest suicide rates and addiction, substance abuse rates as well. I mean, especially now with the pandemic, it's been much, much worse, but doctors have incredibly high burnout rates and it's only starting to be talked about properly now. So if there was anything good coming out of the pandemic, it was that mental health and burnout and these issues have gotten much more of a spotlight, both in healthcare professionals, but also in the general public. And how weird, how weird is it that we had to be locked away from each other to realize that? I think there's just been so much of a stigma around mental health. And there's also a big stigma around time off. And I mean, we talk about that in the historic section, you mentioned earlier, sort of Protestant work ethic. We had it so much drilled into us that hardworking is good, not hardworking is bad. Oh, so making space for the devil, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you're not busy, your mind is going to stray to all sorts of crazy ideas and you're going to sin. But initially it was, well, I don't want to go too deep, too deep into the history, but it was just the rich upper class that was worried about kind of the lower classes rioting or getting drunk if they weren't busy all the time. And they then used religion as a justification for why those people should be working all the time. It didn't originally come from religion. Religion was just used as this kind of argument for why it should be the case and to then convince the people that, yeah, you should be working really hard all the time. Otherwise, well, you're going suffer in health yeah you might you might go hang on <laughs> why are you up there exactly <laughs> why am i down here right so getting away from that guilt it's one of the hardest things around all these things we talk about especially for driven people yeah i was going to say so on that because i feel like oh i never got the micro doses do you have a micro dose to get away from that feeling of guilt Silver bullet, please. <laughs> Getting away from the feeling of guilt. So one thing that's really helped both John, my co-author, and me is using different language, rephrasing the way we talk about certain things. 
we want to get stuff done. We are really driven type A kind of people and we want to get stuff done. We want to build things. So realizing that time off is actually an investment into your productivity, that's been so valuable. And we talk about in the book, the creative process can be broken down into four phases, preparation, incubation, illumination, and verification. You start with preparation, which is just sitting down and doing the actual hard work, understanding the problem, understanding what you actually want to achieve. But then you need to take a step back and actually let your subconscious mind take over. And it's almost as if you have this collaborator sitting there in the back of your mind, but you need to take a step back to actually allow that collaborator to take over. And then if you give it that space, then illumination will happen. That's kind of the sort after aha moment in the shower. The room in the mind has been created. Exactly. Then we need to get back and do the verification. That's again, what I was talking about earlier, that children are not particularly good at. We need to kind of understand, okay, was our great idea actually so great? How does it fit into the bigger picture we're working on? And it kind of goes through these cycles. But a lot of us are very good at the preparation verification phase. Most of us are terrible at this incubation and illumination phase. Understanding that 50% of the creative process is happening when you have room in your mind, when you have a good rest ethic. That's been so helpful for us to really get away from some of that guilt. And instead of saying, oh, I'm going to take a break, I'm going to say something like, oh, let me incubate on something. My co-author, John, he has this great story. So he's from Texas and his grandfather was this kind of cowboy businessman. And he was a really hardworking guy. And a lot of his friends were really hardworking guys. But his granddad also loved to go fishing. And a lot of his friends were kind of making fun of him saying, oh, why are you wasting your time fishing? And he had this great response. He basically said, some of the time I'm out there fishing for fish, but a lot of the time I'm out there fishing for epiphanies. Getting these kind of shift of mindset, that's really helped us. And what that language looks like to you is, again, probably different than what it looks like to me. And also, I think here in Japan, we'd have to think about completely different ways of phrasing that. But becoming aware of what language you use and also getting away from like this pride around busyness and lack of sleep, just using a different tone there. Same if you have a team saying it's okay to take time off is very, very different than saying you should take time off. We see that with a lot of our clients who are thinking about time off policies, for example. A lot of companies are experimenting with unlimited time off, but they then realize actually it often achieves exactly the opposite effect of what they were aiming for. People take less time if they have unlimited time off because they don't want to be the one who takes the most time off essentially and then becomes this race to the bottom. Instead, leaders should take it as their responsibility to it. Basically, it's like sports coaches. Professional athletes know exactly how important rest to them is. And their coaches even more so know how important recovery is. And it's the coach's responsibility to make sure that their athlete is well rested. If they don't rest, the coach and the athlete failed at their job. Business leaders need to take the same responsibility. And they're essentially coaches training elite knowledge workers. So I think we need to shift our focus on that. And I think I completely went off from your original question. <laughs> no, but it was absolutely fascinating and, and is springing up a lot of interesting things. I'm thinking about my clients. I'm thinking about different conversations I've had and, and, and how, how important it is that the people around you value the rest ethic and what you know I can do to role model that, what 
I remember I worked for a um, great guy, Craig Saffin, and he was really good about like he took all his holidays and he would talk about upcoming and then he would say, when are yours? And then he would say, great, that sounds fantastic. And just it was very different to, you know, hearing some of the discussions on other teams where people would say like, well, when this is achieved, then I'll book my holiday. And it's like, well, you might never get to that because you haven't got like the gas left in the tank to go the extra mile that this project requires. So many people think that permission comes from policy and just telling people that something is okay, but it just doesn't work that way. It comes from culture and it needs to be modeled by leadership. A lot of the companies we talk to, they realize the problem and they want their people to have more time off, to have more room in their minds. But the problem is they're not modeling it themselves. They tell them to do it and they tell them that it's okay and they have all these policies around it. But it only works if leadership really takes it and does it themselves first, because only then people realize it's actually okay. It's not just written somewhere that it's okay. It's really encouraged and really celebrated, actually. Yes. Yes. You're making me think about my my summer plans, because normally I would go away to Europe for a month. And last year, of course, I didn't. Uh, this year, I'm not. And I'm like, why am I not booking the whole month <laughs> off anyway? Why? What am I doing? So I feel like that's something I need to address after uh, we finish recording is just go and like... There's a lot of beautiful places in Japan as well. So <laughs> A lot of beautiful places in Japan. Not not Tokyo in the summer, but apart from, apart from that. So in I, I feel like we're coming towards the, the end of our time. I'm not sure we got our three uh, <laughs> micro, micro tactics, but we got lots of other things. And people can find, as you said, there's 50 already in the book that they can try and, and they can look at. One of the ones that, um, of course, is there is to like leave this baby, leave your phone off and, and have a, a digital detox is, of course, a classic one. Absolutely. And again, it can happen from anything from 10 minutes all the way to a full weekend. So you don't have to start crazy big if like even a minute or two feels difficult. Don't try to go for a week without. So if you could leave with, you know, a, a final message or something that you, you haven't shared yet about the concepts in, in your book or something you feel really passionate about, the floor is yours to summarize. I think we covered a lot of the things, uh, at least kind of a very rough bird's eye view of what are important to me and my co-author and what we talk about in the book. One thing you just mentioned um, is also how important the people around you are. And it goes both ways, I think. And one thing we really like to tell people is that calm is contagious. Contagious is a bit of a tricky word right now, but if you model these slowly it'll spread to people around you and it kind of comes back to what you were saying about the Japanese company see yourself as the customer and like how you behave in that sense so how are you modeling this how are you setting expectations it's going to slowly and slowly spread out and I think also what I want to encourage people is to not do too many things at the same time Make a small step, make a small step now, but make it so small that it seems almost silly, so small that you essentially can't fail at doing it. And then keep building and building. I mean, it doesn't really come from me, uh, this idea. There's many people who talk about habit formation. Atomic Habits is a wonderful book uh, around that. But really make your changes small and then build on the compounding effect of that. And that's probably the most sustainable way to build your rest ethic. 
Wonderful. I love that. And uh, next time you're listening to the Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai podcast, just listen to the Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai podcast. Don't be folding your laundry at the same time, listening to these amazing stories of, uh, of people's lives and how they found their Ikigai and, uh, and, and all of those different things requires your full attention, I believe. So not going to happen. No, it's so hard actually to do that. I know. So maybe just try one minute. Just try one minute to do that. I like podcasts while out for a walk. So that's kind of my compromise. Kind of, yeah, that, that will work. So we've talked about the book a lot. Your your contact information is going to be down in the show notes. Is there anything, any other ways that people can get in touch or get involved with the ideas? It really depends on what people are looking for. We do have some courses, some video courses for people online. I think the best resource and the one I'm most proud of is still the book. It's also the most affordable probably. Also, thanks to the amazing illustrations done by Maria Suzuki. I mean, you can see the cover, but also inside. Get the print. It's just a beautiful book. Uh, I'm a very kind of print and paper focused, as you can probably see behind me. I don't like reading on ebook. But yeah, book's a great start. We have some online courses. And also, we are working with different companies around that. So if you're interested in building a REST ethic for your team, please reach out to us. I'm sure the links are down below, I guess, or in the show notes uh, to our website. And you can find our emails there. Reach out to me, max at timeoff.co. Also, just share your noble leisure. Share what gives you room in your mind. Share the problems you're struggling with. I'd be super interested to hear about that. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, I'll be working on some quite different things from now on, but also in the rough well-being space. So I'll maybe have some more interesting things to share about that in a future discussion or somewhere else. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to it. And thank you so much for, for sharing all of your knowledge and clear, deep expertise on the, on the subject. And I, I really look forward to uh, hearing what everyone thinks, what their takeaways are from uh, this episode and the connection between noble leisure, <laughs> which I very hard there, noble leisure and ikigai and how we can just bring more of these meaningful, powerful moments into every day is a great takeaway for all of us. So thank you so much, Max, for being here. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to your next adventures. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Always fun. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you found something you could take away from the episode to help you find your own Ikigai and integrate it into your daily life. And I'd love to hear exactly what resonated with you. So pop over to see me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page. You can find the links in the show notes below. And let me know what you thought was the most important takeaway from the podcast today. And sharing is caring. So feel free to share this episode with one of your friends who you think could benefit from hearing about living a life of purpose. Looking forward to see you on the next episode of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai.